Hi, welcome to If We Could Talk. I'm your host, Samantha Rayborn, another lawyer with the podcast. Nothing can be changed until we face it. If we could talk, this is what we'd say. But ask yourself, if we could talk, would you listen? Before I begin, I feel like I should also give a disclaimer that a lot of my future episodes are going to be recorded using video calling as well as you'll probably just hear nature because a lot of the recording places that are pretty quiet are close due to COVID. So let's jump into the episode. As you know, I'm Samantha Rayborn, but you can call me Sam. Here's a little bit about me before we begin. I went to undergrad at the University of Southern Mississippi in my hometown, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and graduated in 2013. I graduated from Emory University School of Law in Atlanta, Georgia in 2016. After law school, I went to work as an assistant district attorney at the New York County District Attorney's Office, also known as the Manhattan DA's Office. Yes, the office they've based several Law & Order shows on. And no, it's nothing like that. But we'll talk about that on another episode. For this episode... I asked some people I know what they would want to know about prosecutors. I was a prosecutor at the Manhattan DA's office from 2016 through 2019, and a lot of my friends and family still don't know what I actually did. So before talking about the criminal legal system, it's important to at least understand some basics. Side note, you'll hear me refer to it as the criminal legal system rather than the criminal justice system. I have to credit one of my future guests for that phrase. You'll hear more about that in upcoming episodes. So think of what you know about criminal law. Where did you learn it? If you're a lawyer, probably law school. But if you're not, you may be going off of what you've seen in the media, like Law & Order or the news, unless you happen to know a prosecutor personally and have had some detailed conversations about it. Why do I ask? Well, when there's an instance of police misconduct, people talk a lot about police officers. We, the people, call for justice, but who's supposed to deliver it? Some people, I ask, said the government. But whom in the government? Or is it but who in the government? Anyway, my answer is the prosecutor, or at least they set it up. The prosecutor frames the case for the judge and for the jury. That begs a few questions. What or who is a prosecutor? Let's look at a few definitions. According to Merriam-Webster online, a prosecutor is the prosecuting attorney or a person who institutes a prosecution before a court. So I looked up their definition of prosecution, and there were two definitions, at least ones that were relevant. One, the act or process of prosecuting, specifically the institution and continuance of a criminal suit involving the process of pursuing formal charges against an offender to final judgment. Well, that's a mouthful. Well, what about the second definition? Number two, the party by whom a criminal proceedings are instituted or conducted. There is also another definition that was labeled as obsolete, but it's worth noting. And in that one, prosecution was defined as pursuit. When I think of pursuit, I think of a chase. You're chasing someone, uh, like the phrase uh, hot pursuit. I look to another source, Black's Law Dictionary. Black's Law Dictionary is the most widely used legal dictionary. The first two editions were authored by Henry Campbell Black, so the name makes sense. While I can't say that I've referenced it many times, 
most lawyers who want to consult a legal dictionary would probably look to this one. However, according to Black's Law Dictionary, 11th edition, which was the current edition at the time, number one, a legal officer who represents the state or federal government in criminal proceedings. Number two, a private person who institutes and carries on a legal action, especially a criminal action. Essentially, a prosecutor handles the process of charging someone with violating some criminal statute or the law. So what did I mean when I said the prosecutors framed the case or set it up? Well, according to Prosecutor Impact at prosecutorimpact.com, prosecutors are the most powerful actors in the criminal justice system. And I agree. Why? Well, they choose who to charge, what to charge, when to negotiate or make an offer, what charges will be on a criminal complaint or an indictment, and in some jurisdictions or places, you'll hear the word information. And as I mentioned earlier, when preparing for this episode, I asked my friends via social media, Zoom, and text, because, you know, COVID, what they would want to know about prosecutors. And a lot of them wanted to know some background questions. In the criminal legal system, there are two major classifications of crimes, misdemeanors and felonies. Misdemeanors are crimes punishable up to one year in jail, and felonies are basically crimes punishable for more than one year in jail. And in some places, there are also fractions or violations, which are lower than a misdemeanor. And for those, you'll hear people talk about tickets or maybe paying some fines. I received a lot of questions about how cases come in and the process of prosecuting a case. I could tell you a lot about New York City because I worked at the Manhattan DA's office and had some experience interning for a summer at the Brooklyn DA's office. I also interned at the Atlanta DA's office for a semester. But I'm going to give you a rundown of mostly how things worked in New York City. Generally, there's an arrest. The police officer, usually one who made the arrest, works with the prosecutor's office on drafting the complaint in the case. And the complaint alleges essentially enough factual allegations to make out the charges. So if you were to read a complaint, it wouldn't give an account of every single thing that happened. It would literally be just enough to say all of the elements of a particular crime were established. So for example, if you were charged with misdemeanor assault in New York City, the complaints are very simple. They would read something like this. The defendant struck a person to the face with a closed fist, causing substantial pain and swelling. Pretty basic. After a complaint is drafted, it is filed, and then the court and the defense counsel get a copy. The accused is then arraigned on that complaint in court. And at that time, bail is discussed. Now, this is very uh, specific to New York, but at that time, notices are served. And that's statement and identification or ID notice. In misdemeanor cases, that means statements made by the person accused to law enforcement, like police officers and the prosecutor, are usually served. They're usually read out loud in court. But if it's long, sometimes it's typed up and a copy is just given to defense counsel in the court at the arraignment. It's the same thing for ID procedures. And that means like a photo array where the person picks the, uh, someone out of a photo or lineup. And those are just a few examples. In New York, you have to serve those within 15 days. So that's usually why it's done at arraignment. However, you still have some time after the arraignment is completed to serve that on defense counsel. In felonies, those notices are usually reserved until after a case is indicted. At some point, the next court date is set. 
If bail is set, court will usually be in a few days. For misdemeanors where bail is set, the next court date will usually focus on whether the prosecutor obtained an affidavit from the alleged victim confirming the information in the complaint. For this, the prosecutor gets five days from arraignment. For felonies where bail is set, the next court date will focus on whether the defendant was indicted, usually on one or more felony charges. And for this, the prosecutor has approximately six days from the time of arrest. Once the supporting affidavit and indictment have been attained, defense counsel will usually file a motion to either get rid of the complaint or indictment as insufficient or to suppress evidence. And the prosecutor will have the opportunity to respond. At some point, there will be hearings on defense motions challenging probable cause for the arrest and to suppress evidence. Then trial will proceed. Now, none of this is quick, especially getting to trial. All of the witnesses for the prosecution have to be available. The defendant has to be available. The defense attorney has to be available for the expected length of the trial, as well as any defense witnesses they plan to use. And there also has to be a judge with the availability to hear the trial. But at the end of the day, the burden is on the prosecution to be ready for trial, even if no one else is, and to be ready as many times until the stars align. With that said, that's a general overview of arrest to trial. There are always exceptions and special circumstances, but this should give you a picture about how things were in New York City. However, some things are just general and apply to the criminal legal process across the board, such as a complaint being filed, motions practice, hearings, and trial. But you probably want to know specifics about a few more jurisdictions, so I invited my friend Melissa Wings to join me. I met Melissa in law school, and she's a close friend and my workout accountability partner. She used to be a prosecutor in California, and while in California, she had the opportunity to work at a few offices. During our time as prosecutors, Melissa and I would talk about differences and similarities in our experiences, as well as just run strategy and arguments by each other. So it felt right to ask her. So here's Melissa. Hey, Melissa. Hi. Thanks for joining me. I'm so excited. Yay. (laughs) So it only felt right to have you here. So I just want to start off with a couple of questions so our audience has some background on you. What offices did you work at? So I was at the Sonoma County District Attorney's Office, at Contra Costa District Attorney's Office, uh, and Mendocino County District Attorney's Office. And for everybody listening that probably hasn't heard of Sonoma or Mendocino County, those are all in California, right? Yeah. So Sonoma is basically wine country. Mendocino is more part of the Emerald Triangle where it's known for marijuana. So we were prosecutors, obviously, at, you know, a lot of the same time. And but we were just literally in different parts of the country. So I know we would talk a lot (laughs) about opposite coasts. (laughs) We really were. And so we would talk a lot about things that were going on, like in our cases, you know, just for like trial strategy, but also just this is how my day went. Let me tell you about this thing. And there would be so many things I think that, you know, even though there's like an overall general concepts that are the same, there are a lot of little differences. So if you could give just like based on your experience in California, kind of what just kind of a time or timeline or a a brief summary of like the, from arrest to trial. Sure. So 
in the offices that I was at, um, generally speaking, we don't work with the arresting officers on drafting a complaint. The report will, um, or in their report, they refer over suggested charges, but it's entirely within our discretion what charges to actually allege, whether to reject them. We can send the report back to the officer for follow-up, um, especially if we want to know if a completely different charge that the officer didn't think of could be met. Um, you probably work with the officers a little bit more, um, the more serious the charges, however, because you end up working a case more on the front end versus the back end. Um, so search warrants, re-interviewing witnesses for different details or additional details. Um, and then the language of the complaint is different, um, I think, from New York because for us, we usually follow the statute. Um, so, for example, uh, assault with a deadly weapon, you would have, you would insert some of the facts of the case um, on that, like you would have to wit a knife, a car, or whatever the weapon was, and you specified victims. But um, in California, if you actually hit somebody, um, it's called battery there, and a complaint would state on X date defendant willfully and, uh, and unlawfully used force or violence upon the person of and your victim's name. Um, we wouldn't necessarily be specifying which hit there was uh, for the battery if there were multiple hits, unless we wanted to do multiple charges. But once you, um, you know, starting with arrest, at least most of our defendants out in California were released on promises to appear or um, if they made bail and received a court date, uh, they would receive a new court date at the time of their arrest if they made bail. This is um, definitely happening more, especially during COVID times. Um, and it's, especially on California, is going to happen more and more because California um, is also on track to get rid of cash bail in the future. So you're going to see a lot of defendants out on bail or uh, out on their own recognizance or a promise to appear, which is basically their own recognizance. Um, at the first court date that somebody has, so say you get a ticket and you sign the promise to appear, you come to the court. If the prosecution has made a decision to charge the case, uh, at that point, the defendant is given a copy of the complaint and what we called initial discovery. This usually includes the police report and sometimes will include additional stuff like uh, any audio recordings or photos that the police took, but usually it was just the initial police report and the defendant's criminal history. And then um, court dates are set from there. So uh, a lot of the counties that I was in prior to Mendocino, they would arraign somebody and set a future date. Um, they didn't necessarily rush right into setting trial dates. Mendocino was a county where it was very much faster track um, when it came to setting those trial dates. So as soon as arraignment happened, unless there was just some reason to put it over for an entry of plea, generally speaking, there was an entry of a not guilty plea 
and then uh, trial was set immediately. So the for the first court date that somebody has um, on the off chance that they're not on out of custody or didn't make bail, that first court date's within 48 hours. That 48 hours excludes holidays and weekends. And um, I mentioned before, that's only if the prosecution has made a charging decision. We had a couple of times where we hadn't made a charging decision, whether that was because we needed additional follow-up from the officer or whatever the case may be. If we didn't have a charging decision at that time, often the court gave them a choice of whether they wanted a future court date so they knew what our decision was, whether to charge it or not. Or a lot of times what happened was it was just dropped from calendar, but it was up to the person in court to give our office a good mailing address and we had to mail them a notice to appear if we decided to charge it after that initial date. Wait, so I'm going to stop you there. So what do you mean when you say, I guess the the decision to charge. So you guys hadn't come up with the charges would be, but the case was kind of still in court or what does that, what does that mean? Cause we didn't have that. So the times that I saw it the most was usually like DUI cases. So we would have the report. We would think that um, chances were somebody's blood alcohol content was over a 0.08, just how they performed on the field sobriety test and stuff like that. But for whatever reason, we didn't have a, uh, a breath sample. So in California, you can refuse uh, the breath test that's given as part of the field sobriety test, you can refuse that. And then once you're arrested, the implied consent comes into play and you can choose breath or blood. So if somebody chose to give a blood sample, nine times out of 10, we don't have that blood sample within 48 hours. So we don't have a charging decision. Okay. So that makes sense. So like on DUIs, you're saying that basically if you don't take one of the tests, you kind of have to take the other two by virtue of just agreeing to the right or the privilege rather to drive in California, right? That makes sense. Or is that what you're saying? Oh, for the implied consent. Um, yeah. So the first, like the, whenever an officer is administering the field sobriety tests in California, all of those tests are voluntary. You don't have to perform any of them. That includes what they call the preliminary alcohol screening test. And that is only a breath test. Um, And that is before they have made their arrest decision. So, you know, if they're asking you for a breath breath sample and it's the preliminary alcohol screening test, you can say no to that. After, you know, they've completed the rest of the field sobriety test and they they make the decision that they believe they have probable cause to arrest you for a DUI, at that time, they will read you a different admonition. And at that time, it's um, the implied consent. So that is, you know, when you drive in California, uh, you have agreed that you can, if you're arrested for a DUI, you can be tested for blood alcohol content. And at that time, you can choose either a breath test or a blood test. If you choose a blood test, or excuse me, if if you choose a breath test, they also give you an additional admonition because they can't save a sample of your breath. So 
Um, they give a different admonition saying, hey, we can't save a sample of your breath. Uh, do you want to also give a blood test so you have something that you can go back to and retest if you want to? So hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> no, that makes sense because basically you're giving them later the opportunity to test that if that that makes sense yeah like in cases where we've had you know ammunition you have to save a sample or you have to save one of the bullets in order to find out if it was like operable or if they are a match or whatever the case may be whatever the reason you're testing for and so sometimes there's one and so when there's only like one and you have to test it then you have to invite defense counsel to come see it so that makes sense okay sorry so before i interrupted you um about uh, before I interrupted you about the charging decision. So once you've gotten your charging decision, uh, what happens after that? So, um, like I said, in Mendocino, they usually set trial dates right away. Uh, I know you've talked before about statement or ID notices. We don't have any of that there. <laughs> um, all statements from our witnesses should be in the police report or other discovery, like any audio or body cam footage. So if defense believes there's an issue with identity, they can raise that issue with the prosecutor and ask the court to set an identity hearing. I've actually had a couple of those because in Mendocino, especially uh, nobody, <laughs> nobody seemed to carry around a uh, driver's license. Uh, so we had a lot of defendants who were uh, giving officers a name and a date of birth. And if that officer did not know that person, they're not going to know if they're giving a different name or date of birth, as long as it comes back with a hit um, from dispatch. And so uh, I, oh, I know you also mentioned um, confirming information with a victim. Uh, we don't have to do that either. <laughs> um, we can go off the police report, go off the body cam. Uh, there's no, they do have like Marcy's law in California. So we do have obligations to keep the uh, victim of the case apprised of, you know, the status of the case, any um, offers if, if they want to exercise those rights, but we don't have uh, an obligation as far as how the case progresses to do that, I guess. Uh, from the date a defendant is arraigned, they can choose to waive time or set trial without a time waiver. And that's all based on speedy trial rights. For out in California, misdemeanors, if you're in custody at the time of your arraignment and you choose to set trial without a time waiver, your trial has to be within 30 court days. If you are out of custody, when you're arraigned and it's a misdemeanor, it is 45 calendar days. Um, for felonies, when at initial arraignment, uh, they go to set the preliminary hearing right away. If time is not waived and they want a speedy preliminary hearing, because you also have a right to a speedy preliminary hearing for felonies in California, it's 10 days uh, if they are in custody. I believe it's 10 uh, court days for that. Uh, and there's kind of a, a secondary time limit for felonies and preliminary hearings. So um, you'll always hear whether somebody waived 10 or they waived 60. So 10 is 
10 court days, they, you know, you have to have the preliminary hearing within that. They can waive that right, but they still have a right to have their preliminary hearing within 60 days. So if, uh, you know, if you want it sooner <laughs> than 60, you don't waive the right to the 60 day and then it's set within that. Um, and that's 60 calendar days. It sounds like you guys kind of had a different timeline, but then it seems like there are a few common areas, right? And what I meant earlier when I said about the working with the police officers to write the complaint, it's kind of what you said, right? It's not really like they tell me, they have some suggested charges, but ultimately yeah. the DA's office has the final say on what those charges are. Um, because at the end of the day, we're the ones who got, you know, most likely to have gotten the legal training. There might be some officers that have law degrees. And I met a couple that were in law school, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's the DA's office, uh, you know, ultimate say so on what the charges will be. Melissa may not currently be a prosecutor, but you can check her out in her current position at the Georgia Family Law Project. If you are in the Atlanta area and need assistance in a family law matter, check out the Georgia Family Law Project. Full disclosure, I also went to law school with the founding partner at the Georgia Family Law Project, uh, Joanna Smith. Uh, with Joanna as her supervising attorney, Melissa also volunteers with the DeKalb Volunteer Lawyers Foundation and Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation to take uh, temporary protective order cases to help victims get orders against their abusers. One major question I kept getting, including one from one of my neighbors, was why does someone become a prosecutor? So I asked Melissa why she became a prosecutor, and here's her answer. All right, Melissa, this is the big question. Why did you become a prosecutor? So going into law school, um, I knew that I wanted to go into either family law or criminal law. Those were my two areas of interest. I wanted something that was going to stay different and stay interesting every day. Uh, something that I wouldn't be doing the same thing day in and day out. And so I feel like both of those areas are areas where you're dealing with different people, different facts, different scenarios, and you're dealing with a big big, important parts of people's lives. Um, once I was in law school, um, the idea of this idea of doing justice appealed to me more and more while there were cases while I was in law school, um, involving racial injustice occurring, I still had kind of this idea, I guess, of, oh, well, that's an isolated incident and that's not the norm. And while I was aware of, you know, the fact that there was racial injustice um, and situations where even some of my friends like talked a lot about driving while black, I was still of the mindset of, well, that's the cop, that's the officer, that's not the prosecutor. Like, so while you're dealing with, you know, being stopped or maybe being arrested there's all these other steps in the chain until you get to, you know, a bad outcome. You know, you stand up for the victims in defense, you're standing up for your client. I saw early on that a prosecutor can really set the tone for a case and had a lot of the information at the outset. So you have the report at the outset to determine what charges are appropriate. 
you know, you have the discovery as it's coming in. Um, so those were all important to me. The, the biggest issue that I could see when I was deciding whether to do defense or prosecution was Brady violations were a huge uh, thing that kept coming up. So I knew that if I was a prosecutor, I would be the one with the information um, versus being left out in the cold. And I can make sure that the other side had everything that they needed, or at least that was, you know, that was my, (laughs) my thought. Now you may be wondering about me. When I went to law school, I went in thinking that I wanted to use the law to help people. When I would talk to other lawyers at networking events, I would just tell them I wanted to do something in government. I figured when you work for the government that you're in the best position to create change. During law school, I went to several events where practicing attorneys talked about their job and why they do it. I went to several that featured prosecutors of color, and they all talked about how prosecutors' offices need diversity and people of color to really bring a different opinion to individual cases and to the criminal legal system in general. And that was it. It was settled. I was going to be a prosecutor. I interned at multiple prosecutorial agencies and took a job at what many would describe as one of the best state prosecutor's offices or local prosecutor's offices, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And I was honestly excited. But for many reasons you'll hear later, I got burned out pretty quickly. It wasn't as easy to make change to such an age-old system as I thought it would be. And maybe I was naive, but I was one person and maybe had an impact on a few cases. And as you start handling felony cases, there was a lot more supervision, and ultimately the supervising prosecutors had the final say-so. So I found myself doing things I didn't agree with and feeling very disillusioned that I was ever going to make any changes. I found this really old New York Times article. I'm not sure how it came across it the first time, but I found this one line in it very relatable. It was a quote from Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who was also an assistant district attorney at the Manhattan DA's office. She said, the one thing I have found is that if you come into the criminal justice system on a prosecutorial or defense level thinking that you can change the ills of society, you're going to be sorely disappointed. This is not where those kinds of changes have to be made. I'm not sure if she meant it in the same context or if she even feels the same way today, but I think that's pretty much how I started to feel and figured it was time to leave the DA's office and regroup. Over the next few episodes, I'll chat with former prosecutors. We'll chat about why they became prosecutors, the role of prosecutors, and what changes we should consider for the criminal legal system. So stay tuned. And if you have any questions that you would like me to answer, you can email us at ifwecouldtalkpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at If We Could Talk Podcast, as well as our Instagram page at If We Could Talk Pod.